I think that architecture in these days, especially with what we're trying to do in Detroit, is not meant to sort of freeze a singular moment in time, but is meant to express sort of all of those narratives, all of that history, but allow for the future to to sort of make it its own as well. And I'm not necessarily sure that we've ever done that. It's, it's, a, it's an architectural profession. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, conversations on how we live where we live. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with Melissa Dittmer, uh, Chief Design Officer at Bedrock. Melissa joins us today to discuss her work uh, in Detroit. Melissa, welcome. Thank you, Charles. I'm really happy to be here. Good afternoon, everyone. So Chief Design Officer, that's a fantastic job. Tell us what you do for a living. It depends on the day. As the Chief Design Officer, I am responsible for thinking through all of the design aspects of Bedrock's real estate portfolio from a small scale selection of uh, materials for each of our residential units to the ways in which we design streetscapes in some of our larger scale developments or some of our streets in downtown Detroit where we own multiple buildings to the ways in which we activate those public spaces and the design and programming of those public spaces all the way up to large scale master planning of mixed use neighborhoods uh, like our city modern brush park project all the way up to the grandest scale that I've worked at in this role has been the direction and organization and design of Detroit's Amazon HQ2 bid. So all within there, we use design as a means to sort of tell the story of Detroit, both the past and the present and the future story of Detroit to as diverse and inclusive of an audience as possible. And it's only through the design of each of those aspects can we get to a place where, you know, we are acknowledging every aspect of Detroit for all Detroiters. Within Bedrock, we have quite a few creative groups, one of which is a design and architecture group that has 20 different architecture team members. And those 20 architects work on all scales of our portfolio in different ways. Sometimes they were responsible for the strategic vision of projects and then the selection of architects and then the sort of managing of those architects to bring those projects to fruition. Sometimes we act as design architects and then we partner with AORs. And then sometimes we do the work completely in-house. We have different metrics that we follow as we do those because we wanna make sure that because of the scale of our portfolio, there's not one single hand designing that big of a portion of the city. And we just want to make sure there's diversity in that design that appeals to different audiences. So I can give maybe one or two examples of how we how we approach that as a creative group. One such project, which is probably the most famous national project, is the Hudson's project. The Hudson's site is a multi-acre block within Detroit's downtown that had the Hudson's department store there. This was an, you know, an iconic department store 
that all cities have that multiple generations remember sh- coming downtown to shop in. And then this project, this building, when the department store closed, this project sat vacant for multiple years and was eventually demolished. That land, that site is right downtown. And we started working on securing the development rights to that about six years ago that we hired uh, shop architects out of New York in partnership with a local architecture firm called Hamilton Anderson to do the design of that project. Five years later, we're in the middle of construction of that. That will be, there will be two buildings constructed on that site with a large public plaza in between those two buildings. One of which is a 14 story office block. And the other one is a multi-story hotel residential tower. And so we have been working on shepherding that design project for the past five years. And we're really excited that it's in the middle of construction right now. So that's one type of project. Another one is an eight acre master plan project out in Brush Park, which is just north of Detroit's central business district. It's eight acres of vacant land with four historic Victorian homes located on those block and a half of vacant land. And we worked with five different architecture firms from around the country to design over 300 residential units and ground floor retail on those vacant parcels. And that project is about two thirds of the way through construction. And the first wave of new residences have moved in and settled in and started repopulating that area that was formerly vacant. By AORs, you're referring to architects of record. Is Bedrock uh, unique? Uh, you've described it as non-traditional. That seems fair. Is it unique in having such a large percentage of in-house architectural talent? If we compare ourselves to someone like Related or someone like Magellan or these other large real estate development firms, no, we're pretty in line with the amount of in-house creative talent that those firms have, especially at the scale of portfolio by which we have. And the interesting part about what we do, I think beyond those traditional real estate companies, as we start to think about things outside of our boundary of real estate parcel. So, you know, we also have landscape architects on staff who are thinking about the a comprehensive streetscape strategy between blocks and how everything down to the pavers, to the outdoor furniture, to the plant selection and tree selections and how that starts to knit back together blocks and blocks of vacant historic buildings. And then how that can be to best activate those, those new retail streetscapes that have been dormant for so many years. We also have significant internal artistic curators as well, who are thinking about how to curate public art and artists from around the country, if not around the world, and also local artists around Detroit and how we incorporate those into all of our projects, whatever they might be, whether it's an office building, whether it's a uh, residential building with a ground floor lobby, or even public plazas, how we are utilizing art as a catalyst to help define not just Bedrock's portfolio, but the Detroit's uh, central business district. Would it be safe to assume, based on what you've said, that that in-house talent is focused not just within the property boundaries of uh, discrete ownership, but in fact committing to the improvement of the public realm more broadly? Yes. And I think 
when I first started seven years ago and was building up this these teams, these design and architecture teams, what we kept talking about year after year, month after month, was how can we use design to work towards solving longstanding civic issues? And so, you know, in many cases, it wasn't about just designing one building, but it was about designing a building that could be part of a larger ecosystem and which could be working together to solve longstanding civic issues. That could be anything from the way in which we design our parking garages and parking decks to then include mobility strategies that can then begin to work towards with our partners at the city of Detroit and others to build up a larger mobility infrastructure network that could then bring people to economic opportunities and jobs. It could be the ways in which we design our public spaces to be more inviting and rewarding for families and not just millennials, but bringing back families with kids and others, and then making them feel included and welcome in what was happening downtown. So we have, you know, what we find is that Detroit has a lot of problems to solve. (laughs) And so everything that we do, even down to a singular building or a public plaza is part of solving those larger problems. And we need to work together with all of our, our partners and making sure that anytime we do one intervention, that it's coordinated with the other interventions and strategies happening around the city. Well, so you mentioned the Hudson site and your work in Brush Park. These are two of the, the most iconic uh, locations right downtown that in some ways came to stand both for the, the success, the growth of the city in the first half of the 20th century, but also its, uh, its decline in the second half of the 20th century. You know, the Hudson department store, as you, as you mentioned, was not only such a thriving uh, part of the local economy, trading in the 1950s with something like over a billion dollars uh, in activity in contemporary dollar terms, uh, hundreds of millions back then, but also had a kind of civic presence, both architecturally, but in the kind of collective memory of people that lived in this part of the world. And so how do you begin on a place like the site of the Hudson store that had been demolished and left vacant for so many years? How do you begin to kind of return to some sense of vibrancy or energy, or how do you return people back to that site with some sense of um, enthusiasm, given the weight of its history and how much has been lost? Yeah, you know, that is an excellent question. And I, what I really enjoy about it is your use of collective memory. As part of the collective memory, there are different perspectives that come together about that collective memory. In some cases, Hudson site was seen as, and the Hudson's department store was seen as the most endearing family history or family, I'm trying to think of the right word here. It was a tradition, right? You would go and have, you would have tea, you would get, you would get a dress, you would, you know, but it's a, it's a story of, of, I don't know the history of Hudson's per se, but I imagine that it was built for a largely white urban clientele that then decamped uh, for the suburbs along with their retail dollars. So those family traditions are part of a collective memory of a certain audience. There are other aspects to that collective memory that don't remember that department store in the same way. And in fact, see it as a place where they were not necessarily allowed or only allowed through a back door. And so as we work on these projects, as we work on understanding every aspect of what may have been involved in some of these former sites, in some of these buildings that we're bringing back online, 
and in the ways in which we think about our new construction projects, we need to acknowledge all aspects of that and then work on ways in which we can move that collective memory forward in a way that represents Detroit right now. If we're talking about the Hudson's project in particular, the past six months, we've been spending a lot of time thinking about what goes into the ground floor of the the new Hudson's project and what are the programs? What is the retail? What are the different types of restaurants and or other amenities that go into that ground floor that makes it inviting and accessible to everyone? And how can we switch up that, that programming and activation to be differing and changing throughout the day, throughout the week, and maybe even throughout the year on a seasonal aspect and then throughout each year so that we are constantly increasing the audience by which we are inviting to come into this building and participate in this new Hudson's project. In addition to the range of um, public sector and private sector and uh, philanthropic roles uh, that are kind of across all those roles, the city is really kind of re- reinventing itself in the past decade, in part leveraged by the work of Maurice Cox and the planning department, the Detroit Future City Initiative, and the work of uh, Kresge and your colleagues at Bedrock. It strikes me that uh, one of the narratives that have emerged in our conversation is the, the engagement, the role of engaging, the role of conversation with, uh, with the citizenry. Of course, you know, this decade success wouldn't have occurred and it wouldn't be sustainable going forward without genuine political buy-in, without genuine commitment from the point of view of Detroiters. Uh, and so I want to ask you, Melissa, about both with respect to Bedrock and what you say about getting that sense of collective memory and the specificity of Detroit embedded in the work that you folks are doing. Are there specific mechanisms that you engage in in your work for finding those voices or incorporating diverse points of view? Presumably that level of diversity can't simply be within your own in-house talent, which I'm sure is diverse and reflects the diversity of the city, but are there mechanisms or are there uh, processes that you engage in to ensure you have a diverse array of voices informing the work that you're doing? So I wanna talk through maybe two examples that respond to that. One of which is if I can refer back to the Brush Park project called City Modern, that was a eight acres of land issued by the city of Detroit through a RFP request for proposals for developers who would offer up proposals as to how they would uh, build new housing on those eight acres. So we submitted our proposal saying that while we understood and celebrated that Brush Park is a historic district, we in fact were going to design new buildings that respected the historic aspects, but be done through a modern aesthetic and through contemporary architecture. And that was the most heated and comprehensive series of conversations that we uh, had in order to talk through what that meant for us and what that would mean for others. And so over a series of Uh, I think it was about 80 plus meetings that we had over a two year period. We talked through what contemporary architecture means within historic district in order to bring us to a common language of understanding. Not everyone 
has or utilizes design language. And that's a good thing. <laughs> that's a really good thing. Um, and so what's important for us as designers is to make sure that we first begin to build up a shared language of design and design intention with all audiences and then speak through the project in that shared language. And that's what those that series of two years of meetings was about. What does it mean to take references from the historic buildings, apply those to the contemporary architecture and have those two buildings be next to each other, celebrate one another and work off one another? What does it mean to do contemporary architecture in a historic district with the fear that modern architecture is going to result in lowered real estate values. And so how do you dismiss that narrative of sort of evil contemporary architecture and not being one that's going to increase my home value for those who have lived there for a long time? That sort of coming to a common language has been something that we've then scaled up in some of our other initiatives. So those four or five years of bringing forward a shared language that we've co-authored has been really instrumental to get Detroit to a place where we can have these conversations, which I think is a great time to have set the foundation for that, to get to a point where we're talking about some of these, you know, extremely, extremely difficult and frank and honest conversations about race and equity and, you know, what does it mean to be truly inclusive as, as a city going forward? Well, so you've referred to Detroit as a big, small town, small, big town. And uh, the sense I'm getting from both your comments and the conversations we've been having with your colleagues in the city is that there is a certain sense of collective mission. Of course, you're each in your own lanes with your own mandates and your own business models in a way uh, quite different across the across the spectrum. But at the same moment, some sense of uh, shared, uh, sh- shared commitment to uh, the future of the city, even if you don't all share the same endpoint for that. To what extent do you think the success of the past decade has depended upon presence of uh, the various institutions, right? I mean, in the literature around shrinking cities and uh, industrial abandonment, you know, a city like Detroit is characterized by the relative wealth of cultural production, uh, cultural venues, uh, music, the arts, and across a range of aspects of uh, quality of life, an extraordinary, extraordinary amenity for a city of its relative size. But you're suggesting to me that the scale of the city, in fact, becomes now an advantage because the fact that these organizations and institutions are all working with or alongside each other? Is that, is that a fair reading? I think there's a different scale to the human capital and human resources and sort of intelligence resources within the city that versus the geographical scale of the city, which can sometimes be overwhelming. So in one aspect, the thought leaders who have been working on the city for decades, way before Bedrock came into play, have laid the foundation within the city through creative grants, through building up the creative class, through thinking about ways in which to solve some of these city issues, have been doing it way before Bedrock came in. And those that foundation, those seeds have now been planted that has resulted in this past 10 years to be as successful as it has been in working to speed up solving some of these issues. We haven't solved them, but I think the speed at which we're working has increased. And that is partly because 
that scale of of stakeholders who have been working on that is small enough, passionate enough, and interested enough. What did we say beforehand? Aggressively optimistic enough <laughs> to be able to work alongside one another, which is great because the scale of Detroit, back to that Detroit Design 139, 139 square miles of the city is very large. And so the being able to think through those things with a group, a network of people that you trust and that you know are working towards the best possible outcomes for the city of Detroit and its people across that expanse is needed right now. And it's also needed though, to bring in additional voices to interject and be part of those conversations, to bring in strategies and solutions from outside, embed them within the city, as long as they're respectful for what has already been happening there. So you have this dichotomy. Detroit is a dichotomy. It's a big, small city. It's a small, big city, <laughs> whichever whichever way you want to flip around the terminology. And that is, is still working in our favor as we move forward. I want to draw you out a little bit on this. You know, I think of Detroit as a city of great cultural production, great cultural power. It has been over the course of its history, uh, disproportionately, you know, uh, outproducing its weight class with respect to music and the fine arts. And what what do you see as architecture's role in that? Because of course, in, in each of the eras of Detroit's growth and decline, architecture played a particular role. And can you say something more about like, what is the role of architecture specifically in a day like today? You've described it as being necessarily of our time, right? So you've worked, obviously, you and your colleagues have worked hard to both educate a population, but also invite a conversation about how the city might form itself without immediately returning to the most obvious, you know, his, historic reference or simply replacing what had been there. So what would be appropriate to Detroit today or going forward? Uh, wh- what can you say about the role of architecture in, in edifying a city that is already w- so well known for its, for its music and its art and its uh, cultural production more, more broadly? I think it's important to note that we are at a moment in time that is a continuum <laughs> of that cultural narrative. And that, you know, I say this quite a bit, it, that we are especially in Detroit, standing on the shoulders of giants of cultural icons. And there is from, I mean, just take one of our our development parcels is called the Douglas site. The Douglas site is in Brush Park, immediately east of our city modern project. It's 20 acres and it used to have it used to, uh, many hundred years ago, be a continuation of the Brush Park community with small townhomes and uh, ground floor retail at a density that was filled with immigrants from all over the world. That was erased. And then the urban housing was constructed there. Eleanor Roosevelt came in because the the Douglas site had one of the first sort of... Uh, forward-thinking public housing developments that was meant to address certain issues and work on certain things and was applauded as a place of green space filled with towers and resulted in Diana Ross and the Supremes, resulted in uh, many other musical icons that grew up there, cultural icons, comedians that grew up in the Douglas housing uh, development. 
And then, you know, that took a different pathway. Those towers were demolished. And now that site sits vacant. And so we've been speaking with various cultural historians, with various landscape architects about how to bring back every single aspect of those, that continuum, that pre, you know, many different histories that that one site has experienced. And then how do you acknowledge that, celebrate that in architectural landscape form? And then how do you take that forward to allow a place for the continuum to continue? To get back to your direct question, I think that architecture in these days, especially with what we're trying to do in Detroit, is not meant to sort of freeze a singular moment in time, but is it allow it is meant to express sort of all of those narratives, all of that history, but allow for the future to the future communities that are going to be there to sort of make it its own as well. And I'm not necessarily sure that we've ever done that. It's, it's, a, it's an architectural profession. It has been about celebrating, you know, the zeitgeist where we are at this moment. And so it's a different approach. Detroit is not alone in trying to figure that out, right? But what I can say is back to your point is that we acknowledge that the urban form throughout its many versions of time has resulted in cultural strengths and weaknesses. And we just need to make sure that as we move this forward, the architectural form, we're creating a form that allows for all of this to be explored and work towards a better place. <laughs> You've been in this role as chief design officer at Bedrock for a couple of years now. You've been with Bedrock for over a decade, if I have that right, working in Detroit on these topics for, for more than longer than that, 13, 14, 15 years. In that regard, I, I want to ask you about your backstory. How, how, how is it that you got interested in this line of work? How did you come to be focusing on Detroit with that interest? So we moved to Detroit about, like you said, about 14 years ago. And I worked in traditional architecture firm, uh, Hamilton Anderson, when we first moved here. I worked there for about seven years. That's when I worked on some of these other works like Detroit Future City. And while I was there and others set up this design discourse group called Rogue HAA. And what we did was over two years, we set up these conversations about design across the city in different buildings. It was all volunteer, all funded by basically direct requests of like, can you loan us some chairs? Can you give us some of these things? It was very grassroots. That would be the, the in-kind contribution. Yes, exactly. Uh, we call that the Detroit hustle, <laughs> where there was a vacant storefront and we asked the owners, can we use your storefront to host a design advocacy event and talk about the state of architecture and design in Detroit? So we did this for about two years. The very first effort that we had was 13 people showed up to have a conversation about architecture and design. The very last one, we had over 200 people show up and talk about the role of architectural criticism within the conversation of Detroit design. And what does that mean to have a critic do a sort of professional critic on or professional critique on what is happening in Detroit and the design solutions that solved for those challenges. At that moment, that's when I realized, oh, this is this is this is my part-time volunteer gig. This is what I want to do going forward. 
And if there was a way in which I could translate this architecture advocacy over into a full-time job, I was going to, uh, I was going to find it. And so that was the basic pitch that I gave to Dan and others seven years ago, which was, I'd like to come in, I'd like to start working for you. And I'd like to begin having design conversations or built environment conversations or any kind of conversations about what you're doing that will then result in a better understanding of these purchasing of buildings, the uh, ultimate resolution and architectural design of these buildings and moving this portfolio forward. And so seven years ago, I started working for Dan and at Bedrock. And over that time, I had worked on both small-scale renovation buildings of buildings to streetscapes, to plazas, to the coordination and publication of the Blight Removal Task Force Report, which was an Obama task force for Detroit, of which Dan was on. And that, that sort of objective was to figure out what was Blight doing to the city? Where should Blight re- be removed? And how could that stabilize existing communities? And where should that be done? So had spent then the past seven years working on solving, using design to solve some of these longstanding civic issues, have been in this chief design officer role for two years now, and uh, most recently has been tasked with starting up this new office of strategy and innovation for Bedrock and for the families of companies that will start to sort of be more focused on a larger scale strategies initiatives across the city of Detroit and in any of our other cities where we have real estate. One of the things I've learned uh, in my conversations with people working in Detroit is that one of the things the city affords and in some ways uh, requires is that everyone has a side hustle. So it seems to me, Melissa, what you're saying is your side hustle, which was architectural advocacy, conversation, critique about the future of the city vis-a-vis architecture, has become your day job. And in that day job, are you able to maintain the same interests and commitments that you had as an external advocate now that you're on the, let's call it the inside? I think what has become um, very powerful for me is understanding that by working in bedrock, by working in the family of companies, and by being part of these conversations with city of Detroit representatives, with heads of foundations, is that we or I am at an earlier place in the timeline of using design to solve problems. So instead of just solving, building a house for one family, it can be using the architecture and design process to solve housing problems in general. And the working within the family of companies provides a lot of other subject matter expertise and resources in which to pull those together, to have those conversations about solving large-scale systematic like ecosystems of problems. And to me, in the place where I am in my career, that is, that is more fulfilling to be able to be working on those large-scale <laughs> ecosystems. And it's what makes me realize that I am probably much more of an urban designer than I am an architect. So it's much more fulfilling for me to solve systems of problems than one singular form. And the that as I grow in my career, I'm also 
the doors open for me to have those conversations with so many more stakeholders as well. And so a direct answer, I guess, would be yes, it is, it is, uh, it is seven years later, it is the exact same, just at a different scale for me. You don't have to ask to borrow the furniture anymore. Exactly. Advocating at a different level than I was seven years ago. Exactly. (laughs) Melissa, I want to ask you about your work going forward now. So as you see the work uh, going ahead with Bedrock, what are the biggest challenges as you confront the work that you've got cut out for you over the coming years? What what, What are the real impediments to change in a place like Detroit? Well, one of the biggest challenges is still that Detroit's 139 square miles. There are areas that have had extreme success in the past 10 years. And the growth, the speed at which restaurants and retailers have opened back up, that vacant houses have been restored and and families have moved in, that jobs have been created is intense. And that's... 10 years ago, I never would have thought we would have seen this amount of success in this short period of time. However, that is still such a small percentage of the city's total square mile area. There is so much more to do. And so I use this colloquialism all the time, like, how do you handle <laughs> um, eating an elephant? It is one small bite at a time. And there are moments where I, th- you know, where we feel good, whether it's bedrock, whether it's family of companies, whether it's our group of external stakeholders who are working on something like Detroit Design 139, where you feel good. And then you take a moment where you realize, oh, there's still so much more to do. And so that is that's probably the biggest challenge for myself and for anyone who is extremely passionate about this city is that once you finish working towards one thing, it is an immediate switch towards working towards something else and keeping sort of reinvigorated and or creative in that pursuit is a challenge and an opportunity. In addition to that, I would say it's making sure that the ways in which we're solving a problem now is not the same ways in which we should we were solving a problem 10 years ago or even five years ago. The circumstances in which that problem exists has changed. And so we just need to make sure that we're constantly understanding the context of the right now and updating that process for how we approach solving that problem that is relevant to now. Because I think this is also something where designers can get complacent in the processes they use to solve problems. And so it's been a big challenge and opportunity for me is to constantly being sort of more provocative with both the internal designers and external designers that we work with from around the city and from around the country is like, aggressively provoking them to update their processes. So they solve a problem for 2020, for 2030, by the time some of these projects get done, for what might be the next century, and making sure that we sort of leapfrog over the potential solutions that we would have immediately gone to, to get to the next century of solutions that we need for our city. Is the enormity of the city that the sheer, you know, 139 square miles is that that challenge 
uh, does that loom larger as you move out from the center? I know you and your colleagues are committed to working across the city, but many of the things we discussed, whether it's the Hudson site or Brush Park, these are very centrally located. And as you work through the success of the past decade, as you look further afield, it strikes me that there is a kind of centrifugal force in a way that you're propelled to dealing with much larger land areas in further flung or more disparate parts of the city. Is that, is that a good reading? Yes, because while it's essential to sort of jumpstart and reinvigorate uh, Detroit's you know, financial district, which is the downtown, to create jobs and create the real estate portfolio by which those jobs exist, that does not make a city, right? There's many more aspects to a, a, that is required for a city to make it successful. We have started with one aspect. And we're at an interesting time right now through COVID and through like, what is the future of work where um, we have, again, back to this, we solved the problem by creating uh, buildings for those jobs to exist in that may not be the solution in 2020 right now for the future of jobs going forward. So it's that in and of itself is a great example of like, we constantly need to be thinking through what are the processes by which we're solving problems? What are the potential scenarios of future that we need to be solving problems for so that maybe we have an option of solutions and how do we keep updating solutions and those answers so that they project forward into a greater area or a greater amount of time? Because Solving for this singular moment is going to cause problems in a couple of years if we don't think about that. Again, back to that continuum. We, we just we don't know where we're going to go as a city, so we just need to be flexible in how we get there. And it strikes me as one of the challenge, uh, many challenges that uh, designers face these days is in a city with such rapid change, imagining that they're working in a context that by the time their project is in the ground will already be different, not to mention the, the time horizons you're describing. I'm struck, Melissa, by how often in this conversation you've referred to uh, human capital, the creative potential, the intellectual wetware, the, the talent that you need to do this kind of work. Are you able to find that kind of talent in Detroit? Are people, you know, uh, can you recruit? people to join you in this effort. You know, it strikes me that a lot of what you've described depends upon quite a lot of time, energy, availability of both intellectual capacity, but also creativity. Uh, and on the one hand, we think of Detroit as having a long history of both industrial and arts creativity and, and design activity, uh, great institutions uh, across the board from high schools all the way through all the way through uh, colleges and universities. Uh, you yourself, you know, left Chicago and eventually landed in Detroit. I'm wondering if you're now, now that in the role that you're in, are you able to recruit talent to join you in this work in Detroit? And, and where are they coming from? Um, well, the way I'm going to answer that is a it's a different answer now in what month are we in? November 2020. Then I would have answered this, uh, let's say January 2020 or February 2020. Detroit as a city that is able to think through challenges that result in interesting and provocative design solutions is appealing to people across the country, if not across the world. And it has been, right? And you can see that in terms of all of the national press, the international press, the headlines that are published about Detroit. 
But I think uh, over the past 10 years, the difference has been that there are starting to be really innovative and creative solutions that are being tried in Detroit that aren't seen in other places. And some of those are a result of outsiders coming in to the city and trying new things. Um, One such example is Philip Kafka, who has True North, which is a small development of Quonset huts um, within a couple of blocks of vacant land. Another one is done by some local Detroiters, like Christian Hertien Architects, where they came up with a series of missing middle homes to be constructed in the North Corktown area or North End area. So we have the talent here, and we're also attracting the right talent from across the region, from across the country to come in and work alongside those local talents. I would say that it the most successful results have been in a combination of those two, because you get, again, we get a different approach for those who have worked and hustled and struggled to do architecture and design in a city where those opportunities haven't existed for consistently for decades. And they can make beautiful things out of almost nothing. <laughs> out of volunteered work or out of donated materials, in-kind resources, they can make amazing things. And when we give them the opportunities to do those types of approaches, but with a real budget, we're finding um, that we get creative, innovative results. Melissa Dittmer, thank you so very much. Thank you, Charles. It's been wonderful being here. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilliard, Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham. To learn more, visit fotac.gsd.harvard.edu.